We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this weather. We pray that you would... um, just be with our church, that you would build us up and deepen us in relationship with you, in relationship with one another, and in zeal for our community, for our neighbors, for our country, and for the nations. We pray that you would change our hearts as we encounter your risen son in your word tonight. We pray that you would do so for the good of our church and for the glory of your name. And it's for your name we pray. Amen. Well, every time that I drive from Kentucky to my parents' house, I drive through this little town in western Maryland. And, and for years, every time we drove through this town, there's a, there's a church there with a giant sign that says, Noah's Ark being rebuilt here. This was before the Ark Encounter and everything happened in Kentucky. They, they were thought they might be the first, um, but there's this big sign, and you can see that there's this beginning of a steel structure being built out next to the church, but for years, we would drive by, and this ark would never change. I'm like, well, you know, that's kind of neat. I'd like to kind of see the ark progress as we go back and forth, and uh, the ark never changed. So eventually, I asked a friend who actually lived in that town, I said, do you know anything about that church? Because They keep saying that they're going to build Noah's Ark, and it's not making any progress. And I don't know if they're, like, counting on a flood coming anytime soon, but they probably need to move a little quicker. And and he he told me the backstory was actually really unfortunate that the pastor of that church had actually raised millions of dollars to have this Ark built, and then ran off in the middle of the night with all of the money and the secretary. So it's, it's about as horrendous of a church story as we could even imagine. But I want you to imagine if that would happen in our church, maybe we weren't building Noah's Ark, or maybe we're, we're building an extension to the building, or, or for whatever reason, we raised a lot of money, and you gave sacrificially for that building project, and then one of our pastors ran off in the middle of the night and took all of the money that you had sacrificially and prayerfully given. We would be furious. And and I want you to imagine what you would think if several years after this happened, that pastor walked through the door on Sunday morning and said, I spent all the money, but I'm really sorry. We're laughing. And that's the radical message from the book of Philemon. So we've been studying this book over the past several weeks, and today we're going to be nearing the climax of the book, where the Apostle Paul will make a huge ask of his ministry companion in the city of Colossae, a man named Philemon, as Paul asks this man to forgive and to release his runaway slave, Onesimus. Because a a runaway slave in the first century was similar to someone that would steal a lot of money and run 
away. He was a thief. He was a robber. He was a burden. And Paul is going to make the unbelievable ask here that that Philemon would forgive this disgraceful thief. And the grounds that Paul has to make such an unbelievable ask is because he knew that Philemon was a Christian. And he knew that being a Christian radically transforms all of our relationships. Being a Christian radically transforms all of our relationships. If you don't hear anything else I say tonight, that's what I want you to take home. Being a Christian radically changes all of our relationships. And as we look at the book of Philemon tonight, specifically verses 8 through 16, we're going to see some examples, four examples of how being a Christian radically changes all of our relationships. We're going to see that being a Christian results in changed relationships with Christ, a changed relationship with yourself, a changed relationship with the church, and a changed relationship with your enemies, a changed relationship with Christ, yourself, the church, and with your enemies. So let's read this text together. Philemon, verses 8 through 16. If you have a Bible, you can find this book right before Hebrews. Philemon 8 through 16. For this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, as an elderly man, and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. I became his father while I was in chains. Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. I am sending him back to you. I am sending my very own heart. I wanted to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve me in your place. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent, so that your good deed might not be out of obligation, but of your own free will. For perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time, so that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but as more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. He is especially so to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Being a Christian radically changes every relationship that we have first. Being a Christian changes our relationship with Christ. Being a Christian means that Christ is your king. He commands every inch of your life. Look with me again at verse 8. For this reason, Paul says, although I have great boldness, in Christ to command you to do what is right. Now, Paul is recognizing here that he has authority. He is an apostle. He is a church leader. He's been given authority by Christ. And also, he has a personal claim to authority over Philemon because, as we learned a few weeks ago, the apostle Paul actually led Philemon to faith in Christ. So so Paul has a great claim over Philemon. Philemon owes an awful lot to the Apostle Paul. 
But Paul is recognizing that the reason he has authority over Philemon is because that authority has been given to him by Christ. And so ultimately, Paul's king, and ultimately Philemon's king, and ultimately my king and your king is Jesus Christ. Christ has authority over all things, and that is the grounds that Paul makes for this unthinkable request that he's about to make to Philemon. He says, I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right. We, we learned a few weeks ago in the beginning of Philemon that Christ does not make requests of his people. He makes unapologetic commands and demands of every inch of your life. And so it would be perfectly reasonable for Paul, as a messenger and as a servant and as a leader in Christ, to go to Philemon and make a demand. But he doesn't, and we'll talk about why in a few minutes. For now, I just want us to dwell on this verse and see that being a Christian results in a radically transformed relationship with Christ. Now, this may seem to cause a problem in your mind because we have all radically offended this king. We have all chosen at times to disobey this king rather than to obey him. We have all chosen to do what we want instead of what we know God has clearly commanded in his word and through his church. We have all gravely offended this king. We like to think of ourselves as knights, as lords and ladies in the king's court. When in reality, we are pirates and rebels and thieves. We have no right to be near this king in his unapproachable glory. And that's exactly why we need to make Jesus our king. Because Jesus, in his infinite love for us, came to the earth, lived the perfect life that we have not lived. He died the death that we deserve to die. And he rose from the dead, showing that he has authority and power over all things. And in his resurrection, we are justified. That if we believe in him, God declares that we are not guilty, but righteous instead. Not bad, but good instead. Because we're united to Christ. That doesn't happen because God just decides, well, they're a Christian now. I guess I can ignore their sin. That happens because we're united to Christ. That everything that was true about Christ is now true about us. And so if Christ is perfectly righteous, we are perfectly Righteous in God's reckoning. Believe in Christ. And believing in Christ and trusting Christ means that you trust that he knows what's best for your life every day. So believing in Christ always necessarily has to lead to obeying Christ. Believing in Christ and obeying Christ are two sides of the same coin. Now, if Christ is king, that means that you, brothers and sisters, are not king. And that means that I am not my king. And that's our second point. Being a Christian results in a radically changed relationship with yourself. It gives us a different view of ourselves. Christians surrender the right to control their own decisions or be their own authority. Let's look at verse 9. So Paul says in verse 8, I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, 
But then in verse 9, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, as an elderly man, and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And so like we said, Paul has authority. He's an apostle. He's writing the Bible. He's, he's Philemon's father in the faith. He has the right to wield that authority to accomplish his own agenda. But instead, he lays down that right. Why? Why does he lay down that right? Look at verse 9. I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. And so Paul lays down his rights because he loves Philemon. Because he loves Philemon, he doesn't make demands of Philemon. Now, he's perfectly within his station to do so, to make demands of Philemon, but he chooses not to because he loves Philemon. And I think Paul laying down his rights is an example for Philemon. Because, like we said, Paul's about to ask Philemon to do something unthinkable, forgive a thief. He's asking Philemon to lay down his rights for justice. And so Paul's exemplifying that. Paul's being an example of what it means to be a humble follower of Christ. And now, according to Jesus... This is actually what the entire Christian life is about. So if you want to know what it means to be a Christian, look at Mark 8, 34 through 35. Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow after me, so if you want to follow after Jesus, he's about to explain how. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and because of the gospel will save it. This is what it means to be a Christian, to lay down the rights we think we have for our own life and to surrender them to King Jesus. So are you laying down your rights? Is Christ your king or are you your own king? Let me just give you a few examples. You probably, if you're like most people, you have about an hour or so in between work on Wednesday night and church on Wednesday night. And you have the right to go home and rest and recharge before coming to church. But there are people in our church that need rides. So you have to lay down your right and choose instead to serve that person. On Sunday morning, you have the right to only talk to the people that you like, the people that are easy to talk to, the people that are like you. But if you look around, there might be someone that's eating breakfast alone. And so you lay down your right to serve and love that person because you believe that you're not the king, that Jesus is the king, and that that person is incredibly valuable. Imagine how terrible it would be if God only chose to spend time with people that are like him. He definitely wouldn't hear my prayers. But by his grace, he chooses to listen to us, even though we're so inferior to him. How arrogant of us to think that other people aren't worth our time or attention or love or care. You have the right to avoid bringing up the gospel with your unbelieving family and friends, but they're going to hell unless you tell them. 
And so you lay down your right to avoid an awkward conversation, and in love you choose to tell them. Because their eternity is not worth avoiding one awkward conversation for. You love them more than you love your comfort. You have the right to spend your money however you want. But you need to give up that right because there are millions of people that live in unreached people groups. And so when you give money to our church, a portion of that goes to fund the International Mission Board, which sends missionaries to those people. So when you put in the offering basket on Sunday morning, you are changing eternity for a people group. You have the right to spend your money however you want, but there is a great need that you cannot ignore. You have the right to spend your time however you want, but you need to give up that right to serve other people. Your Saturday does not belong to you. Your Sunday afternoon does not belong to you. Your nights after work do not belong to you because you are not the king. Being a Christian results in a radically transformed relationship with yourself. That means your life is not your own. Again, look at Mark 8.35. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. So if you spend your life trying to grasp onto your own privileges, you will lose it. But, Jesus says, whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. If you want your life to matter, invest it in helping people meet Jesus and helping people grow in Jesus. You lay down your rights for that. Being a Christian results in a radically transformed relationship with Christ, a radically transformed relationship with ourselves, and a radically transformed relationship with the church. We already started to dig into the application on this one a little bit. But being a Christian gives you a different relationship with other Christians. We're no longer merely friends, we're family. And we love each other as a result of that. So so let's read verses 10 through 16 again and just note the great affection that Paul uses here to talk about his friends Philemon and Onesimus and the church at Colossae. Note the family language that Paul uses. He says, I appeal to you, verse 10, for my son Onesimus. I became his father While I was in chains, once he was useless to you, but now he's useful, both to you and to me. That's a good thing to say about someone. He's useful. He's valuable. I am sending him back to you. I am sending my very own heart. I wanted to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve me in your place. He loves this guy. Verse 14, but I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that your good deed might not be done out of obligation, but of your own free will. He respects Philemon because he loves him. Verse 15, for perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time, so that you might get him back permanently. Christians live together forever. Verse 16, no longer as a slave, but as more than a slave, 
as a dearly loved brother. He is especially so to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Philemon and Onesimus have a radically transformed relationship. To remember the historical background, Philemon became a Christian under the ministry of the Apostle Paul, returned to his home city of Colossae and helped serve the church there, helped build up the church there. And he has a slave or an employee, however you want to think of it, named Onesimus. And Onesimus is not a Christian. So they have an employer-employee relationship, but they do not have an equal relationship of brothers. Onesimus runs away and their relationship changes. No longer are they an employee and an employer. They are now two enemies. They are now an owner and a thief. But when Onesimus becomes a Christian, again, under the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and returns to Colossae, Philemon and Onesimus have a new kind of relationship. They are now brothers. They are now family. The church is a family. It is not an event. It is not an organization. It is not a building. It is not a gathering. It is not a nonprofit. It is not a business. It is a family. We call one another brothers and sisters. And that's not just a cute religious phrase. That reflects a deep reality that God is our Father and He has united us to one another. We're going to live together forever. We might as well learn to love one another, to serve one another. To serve one another. You have radically transformed relationship with the other people in this room. Does your life reflect that? Again, let me just ask you a few questions. Does the way you spend your time reflect that you value people in our church? And I'm not talking about the way you spend your time on Sunday and Wednesday night. Well, that's great. That's a great place to start. But families don't see each other two times a week. Families live together. So does the way you spend your time reflect sacrificial pursuit of your family? Does the way that you attend the church gathering reflect that you value people in our church? If you leave as soon as the service is over, that means you don't value the people in the room. And maybe you have to go to work, and that's totally fine. You have to provide. And if that's your case, this does not apply to you. But only seeing people twice a week does not reflect value in people. Do you have real, deep relationships with anyone in the church who is unlike you? Someone that is not your biological family, someone that is in a different age bracket, someone that is in a different socioeconomic bracket. Think about meals in our church and specifically think about who eats alone and who eats with who in those meals. You'll notice a lot of people of the same age and a lot of people in the same socioeconomic class. And that ought to disturb us deeply. So older people 
Younger people like me, we need you. This is not an option. Titus 2 says that if we are going to grow in maturity, it's going to be because you invest in us. And younger people, that means you have to humbly sit at the feet of older people. That's how you will grow to be a godly man or a godly woman. Again, this doesn't mean seeing them twice a week. It means welcoming them into your home. It means laying down your rights so that you can serve them sacrificially every day. And to serve them sacrificially every day means you have to know them. And to know them means you have to listen to them. You have to spend time with them. Do you serve people in our church? Because love is not primarily a feeling. Love is a verb. Love is an action. So when we, ta- when we talk about do you love the church, we don't just mean does your heart get warm and fuzzy when you think about it. We mean do you serve people? Because love is not a feeling, it's a verb. And the, the feeling of love follows the action of love. Do you know the needs of people in our church? Do you rise to meet the needs of people in our church? Do you serve people that you don't like in our church? Do you serve people without expecting anything in return, whether that's recognition or a thank you or a return favor? Your church, our church, should be more important than our biological families. And that feels weird. Because that's the opposite of what our culture teaches us to think. That's radical. Because being a Christian results in radically transformed relationships with the church. And finally, being a Christian results in radically transformed relationship with your enemies. Because being a Christian requires that we forgive one another. Look at verse 15 with me. For perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time so that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. So Paul is about to make his big request, his big ask, and he's setting the whole thing up by reminding Philemon, you guys have a new relationship. You're changed. You're not enemies anymore. You're brothers. So verse 17, so if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would me. Onesimus is a thief. Philemon has the right to sue him. Philemon has the right to demand payback. Philemon has the right to get him thrown into prison. But Paul is asking Philemon to lay down his rights because he loves God and he loves Christ and because he loves his new brother Onesimus. And that's going to be challenging. The letter to the Colossians is in many ways a companion to Philemon. They were written probably about the same time to the same body of believers in Colossae. And Colossians chapter 3 verse 13 says, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. When we first got married, Lydia pasted a sticky note to our refrigerator. It said, let the measure of God's grace to you in Christ be the measure of the grace you show to your spouse. 
And that ought to be the same for every relationship. Because I don't know about you, but I have been greatly forgiven. God has radically transformed my life and given me grace upon grace upon grace. And it is so arrogant and foolish when we choose to not forgive other people. Jesus said in verse Matthew 5, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, this is radical. If this doesn't offend us, we're not listening. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. That's astounding. Forgiven people forgive people. Christians are not allowed to hold on to grudges. Christians are not allowed to gossip about what other people have done to them. Now, if someone is in, a, in danger, a danger to you or a danger to themselves or a danger to someone else, then you have to speak up. That's not what we're talking about here. But if someone wrongs you and hurts your feelings, that is serious. And we don't want to belittle that. But you are not allowed to go to someone else and talk about it. And yes, we need help and counsel processing, but our goal when we talk about how other people have wronged us should never be to shame them. Because by God's grace, that's not how God talks about us in Christ. Instead, he says, I have blotted out your transgressions. As far as the east is from the west, I have cast your sins away from you. God speaks about us in language that we're pure and spotless and blameless. We've been forgiven of so much. We ought to forgive one another. Jesus told a story in Matthew chapter 18. We read it on Sunday, but I want to read it to you again. Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? Seven, that's pretty good. That's a lot of times. Jesus says, I tell you, not as many as seven, but 70 times seven. That's a lot more times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed him 10,000 talents. That's a lot of money. Was brought before him. Since he did not have the money, it would have been impossible. There's no way that he could have had that money. That's an unbelievable sum of money. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. That is right. That is justice. That's how things are supposed to work, right? Let's keep reading. Verse 26. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. That's unbelievable. 
that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. So we've got 10,000 versus 100. It's not a lot versus a lot. He grabbed him. He started choking him and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. I've heard that before. That's what this unforgiving servant just said to his master. Will he respond the same way? Verse 30, but he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then, after he had summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all the debt that because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. The point of that story is not to to make us wonder if if salvation is conditional or, or if we have to earn salvation by forgiving others. Of course we don't. The point of that story is that forgiven people forgive people. And the question that the king asks the servant is the same question that our king will ask us when we hold grudges, when we avoid people that we feel have wronged us. I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Being a Christian results in radically changed relationship with our enemies because we too were once enemies of a king. And we have been gloriously forgiven and unworthy as we are, have been welcomed into a kingdom that will have no end. Let's pray together. God, we have such a great need for you. God, I pray right now that you would place on the mind of everyone in this room someone in, in our church that they need to have a renewed relationship with. Whether that is someone that they are holding a grudge against and need to forgive, or someone that, someone that they have wronged and need to repent to, someone that they have sinned against by ignoring or refused to meet their needs, or sidelined. Whatever the case, God, I pray right now that you would lay on each of our minds and hearts someone that we need to pursue. And I pray, God, that you would give us a burning discontent to change those relationships. I pray, God, that you would give us fire and power from your Holy Spirit and the strength that we need 
to pursue transformed relationships. Jesus, you are the king of our lives. I pray that we would humbly surrender them to you and that we would seek out relationships that honor you as our king. And it's for your name we pray. Amen.